The following Dharma talk was given at a retreat offered by Common Ground Meditation Center of Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I know it always seems a little bit uh, convenient truth that generosity leads to joy. Like, like that's maybe what a marketing person <laughs> would want to come up with, something like that. And part of the theme of this retreat is um, understanding how, how it is that joy arises. And one of the reasons that Dana, Sila, and actually Bhavana, I said Samadhi, but Bhavana means mental development, as Jean said. Samadhi is very closely aligned with Bhavana. It's a major part of Bhavana. But the three pillars are Dana, Sila, uh, Dana, Sila Bhavana. And the reason Dana is so emphasized is that it's an expression of deep understanding. It's not um, real Dana, real generosity isn't something that we do grudgingly. It's, it's, uh, it comes from an understanding of non-self or interdependence. And that doesn't exclude our own neediness or our own need for security, you know, enough money to pay the bills, to take care of ourselves, to take care of our family. So it isn't that we favor others at the exclusion of ourselves or favor ourselves at the exclusion of others. But because we're not caught in, in that sort of dualistic thinking, then our, our activity in the world um, is really beautiful. It's all generosity. Everything we do, including brushing our teeth or cooking dinner for ourselves, that's also generosity, just as much as giving money to Common Ground or to Holy Spirit. And so, as I've been talking about urgency and joy and how these two things arise together when we're in the proximity of truth, <clears throat> and I don't mean truth with some big capital T, but just the truth of our experience. One of the signs of being in the proximity of truth is joy or energy and also a sense of urgency that it would be easy to lose it. It would be easy to go down some road of stinginess, for example, that wouldn't help us at all, wouldn't help anybody. So tonight, tonight I want to talk about, more specifically, I think, what keeps us in the proximity of Dharma or Dhamma, leading to a wholesome sense of urgency and joy. Joy and urgency are really different flavors of energy or feeling alive as opposed to feeling numb or dead, heavy, <clears throat> weighed down. And of course, one of the things we realize very quickly in life is nothing gets accomplished when we're weighed down, when we feel burdened, when we're overwhelmed or depressed even. <clears throat> everything good depends on there being enough energy to do what we need to do to learn what we need to learn in life
been on a Mary Oliver kick lately. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Unless you like her, then it's good, I suppose. So this is a, a well-known poem of hers, When Death Comes. When death comes like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me, and snaps the purse shut, when death comes like measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades. I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness. And therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, and I look upon time as no more than an idea, and I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as a common, as common as a field daisy, and as singular, and each name a comfortable music in the mouth, ending, as all music does, toward silence, and each body a line of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened, full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. So that line, I was a bride married to amazement. Just hearing that line sort of is enlivening. I mean, just recognizing that possibility, living with amazement or joy. As I read this morning that poem by Rumi about filling our pockets with rocks and stones, sort of missing our opportunity. So this is a useful barometer for us. Where is their energy? And unfortunately, most of the energy is when we turn toward what's difficult or to what's new, you know, to new territory, to what we're not comfortable with, not comfortable opening to. There tends to be a lot of energy there. That's why people like to fall in love, because it's new and there's a lot of energy. I think more than the particular relationship, more than the sex, people like the energy of the unknown. So actually, what's in the way of that unknown? think uh, arrogance, right? It's like thinking we know what's what, like right now, thinking we know what's what, especially those of us who have been on more retreats than we can count, you know, it becomes ordinary or becomes um, something we think we know when we're on retreat. People often look back toward one of the early retreats when their mind was still really like, wow. It's amazing being with a group of people and not talking. It's amazing sitting and walking for a couple days. 
But one of the amazing things about our mind is how it can turn what is truly amazing into the same old thing. <laughs> I mean, we do it all the time. Where we meet our friend, you know, and he or she is truly amazing, you know, a wonder of nature, and we turn our friend into the same old, same old. Or everything that we sort of... Falling asleep is pretty amazing. I mean, if, you're, if we're really there in the process of falling asleep, it's amazing how the mind shuts down. So simply turning to this moment in a fresh way or uh, not getting caught by our arrogance or our view that this is nothing much, this moment is nothing much, it, uh, that's a movement towards Dhamma or towards Dharma, the way it is. And inevitably, unavoidably, the mind is enlivened, the heart is enlivened or energized. So this is from the Buddha's talk, one of his talks, discourses. He said, and gladness springs up within him or her on realizing that, and joy arises to him, thus gladdened, and so rejoicing, all his frame becomes at ease. And being thus at ease, he is filled with a sense of peace. And in that peace, his heart is stayed. And gladness springs up within him on his realizing that, and joy arises to him, thus gladdened. And so rejoicing, all his frame, his body, becomes at ease. And being thus at ease, he is filled with a sense of peace. And in that peace, his heart is stayed. So there's, there is this natural process, just like there's a natural process that leads to ignorance and suffering, there's also a natural process or pattern unfolding that leads to happiness. And the Buddha talked about this just as much as he talked about how it is a human mind stumbles towards dukkha. He talks about how the human heart-mind opens to peace, to joy. And it's really... Uh, important to understand this, to understand it as a natural thing, because otherwise it, it feels like a tremendous burden. You know, that that joy, developing joy and the deeper states of joy of stillness and peace, that it's like this huge mountain we have to walk up, or this huge swamp we have to cross. But it's not. It's just a, a natural effortless unfolding when the conditions are such. Just like dukkha, it's just the inevitable unfolding when the conditions are supportive of dukkha, of suffering. So how do we get to the how do we get to the proximity in the proximity of Dharma that what 
that which enlivens the heart. And one of the things that you hear about all the time if you look at the discourses of the Buddha, he talks all the time about seclusion. And I think it can be confusing because especially with the, you know, knowing about the monastic tradition, we think seclusion is synonymous with shaving our hair and uh, taking vows of celibacy and, you know, taking on a code of conduct, a monastic code of conduct and living apart from the world, living with a few belongings. And I'm, it's obviously it can be quite effective to engage in those activities or that lifestyle, but that's not really what the Buddha means by seclusion. He's talking about an internal state that certainly is supported by external conditions. There's no doubt about it. But we need to understand what is the internal state of seclusion. And there's even a discourse in the suttas, in the collection of talks of the Buddha, where, um, you know, even though, of course, the Buddha was the leader of a monastic tradition, there were monks and nuns practicing under him, and they call it, they refer to it as the homeless life because they were wandering monks and nuns. And that at one point, <coughs> some monks came to the Buddha. I don't know if they complained, but they told the Buddha about uh, another monk who was uh, really into seclusion, living alone, not interacting with the other monks. And But they thought something was a little off, so they told the Buddha about that. And the Buddha... Um, asked this monk to come and see him. His, monk, his name was Tara, which was probably the name he got after this interaction. Tara is sort of like respected elder. Tara presented himself. The Buddha asked him, people say that you like living alone and that you praise the practice of solitude. Is that true? And the monk replied, yes, Lord, it is true. The Buddha asked, what is your way of living alone? And Tara replied, I walk into the village for alms alone. I leave the village alone. I come back to the monastery alone. I eat the midday meal alone. I sit. I practice sitting meditation alone. The Buddha said, Monk Tara, it is true that you live alone. I cannot deny that. But I want to tell you a way to live alone that is much more enjoyable, much more deep and wonderful. And then the Buddha taught him, let go of let go of what is past let go of what is not yet observe deeply what is happening in the present moment but do not be attached to it this is the most wonderful way to live alone <coughs> so <clears throat> this is what we need to understand like what does this mean not leaning into the past or leaning into the future in another discourse, uh, I'm not sure how this monk's name is pronounced, Migajala, I think, something like that, Migajala. And the Buddha instructed him, forms and images which are the objects of our vision can be pleasant, enjoyable, and memorable and can lead to craving and desire. If a monk is attached to them, then he is bound by them and he is not alone. He is, he is always with another. Indeed, 
Migajala, if a monk is bound by any fetter like this, even if he lives deep in the forest, in a deserted place, without others, and and without any other disturbance, he still lives with another. Why? Because he has not because he has still not thrown off the fetters that bind him. Those fetters are the ones with whom he lives. If a monk lives like this, even in the center of a village, oh, so then then he tells uh, uh, Migajala that uh, someone who lives at ease, not bound by attachment, that that person is free no matter where they live, even you know, in the middle of Minneapolis with a family, with a busy job. You know, we often uh, have a sense of this, this experience of being enlivened by life, being amazed by life, being woken up by life in more extreme situations like, you know, when we're out backpacking and see an amazing view or when somebody close to us dies it sort of shocks us. Those events can shock us in a way where we drop our sort of ordinary attachment to things. But what the Buddha is suggesting here is to systematically cultivate a heart-mind that doesn't cling. This is what seclusion really means. And this brings us into the proximity of the truth. It's the clinging that distracts us from what is truly amazing or from the freedom that's here and now. It's like we we create... Uh, Joko Beck has this wonderful image where she talks about as confused, deluded human beings, we have a perfectly fine house and then, because of confusion, we build another house right on top of it, right around it. And so then our house becomes dark and cramped and dank and not such a good place to live. And we wonder why. We have this superstructure around our life. And this is our habits. These are our habits of clinging. This is the superstructure around our existence. And it's a real burden. So we cultivate a life of non-clinging. This is the independence that the Buddha talks about a lot, living independent, living freely. It's not independent, living with uh, independence or living freely doesn't mean that we don't have relationships. It means we're not bound, we're not burdened by the relationships that we have. doesn't mean we don't have a job even. It just means we're not burdened by having a job. Now, it's nice to do this training in the context of a relatively simple life. Or, in other words, it's not so easy to begin this training when we're completely overwhelmed with our relationships and our jobs and the difficulties in life. So that's why, especially as lay people, we go on retreats because at least for a couple of days, You know, we're relatively free of our duties and responsibilities. We don't even know what's going on at home. Most of us, you know, we're not making calls. Who knows what's happening in the world? It's sort of nice to be 
to have some freedom from having to know all of that. And then in this relatively simple life that we have on retreat, we can see more clearly when we pick up something. When we get attached, we start to cling. I mean, all I have to do is start thinking about uh, what building Common Ground might purchase, and my mind and heart can become entangled very quickly. And all I have to do is let that go, and what is a burden disappears very quickly. And if we see that hundreds or maybe thousands of times in the course of a day, we understand very clearly this path that the Buddha that the Buddha taught. We really get what it's about. When there's clinging, any preferences, any attachments, there's the heart is burdened, the heart's entangled. When there's no clinging, no attachments, the heart is free, it's unburdened. And we live in, in, you know, in alignment with Dhamma. We're not separating ourselves out. We're not building a superstructure around our life. So what is an existence, a human existence without attachment? Well, it's just Dhamma. It's just the way it is. It's like our life becomes an expression of the truth. This is what a saint is. She's somebody living in alignment with the truth. Not creating um, a superstructure around her life. Some of you know about this saint uh, in India, Nisargadatta. This is from his book. Um, I think it's I Am That. It's this amazing book of his conversations with people. Some of you have probably seen it. He died not that long ago, like in the early 80s or something like that. There was just a cigarette vendor in Bombay. And uh, but, uh, through some interaction with his teacher, I really woke up. And so at some point in response to somebody's question, he said, you need not stop thinking. Just cease being interested. It is disinterestedness that liberates. Don't hold on. That is all. The, the world is made of rings. The hooks are all yours. Make straight your hooks. And nothing can hold you. Give up your addictions. There is nothing else to give up. Stop your routine of acquisitiveness, your habit of looking for results, and the freedom of the universe is yours. Be effortless. So you get a sense like that seclusion, that's the the seclusion. It's a, a seclusion from this habit, this very deep habit of acquisitiveness, of wanting to turn the moment, the experience of the moment, into something. And usually it's into something that relates to the past 
and the concept of the future. Like, I'll sit well now so I can become enlightened in the future. Or I'll do this to avoid what happened in the past. And so our life <coughs> gets bound by these thoughts and these uh, fears and hopes. So again, just thinking about ways to come into the proximity of Dhamma, where we feel alive and enlivened, we feel awake, we feel joy. And so it's this first way um, is to understand what needs to be abandoned, what needs to be let go of. It's very specific. It's really easy, it's, it seems easier to, to us to imitate being a good person. You know, so we, we think what we need to abandon is our pride, so we pretend to be humble. Or we think we need to abandon our aversion, so we pretend, you know, not to be aversive. But what needs to be abandoned is something here in the heart. And it's this clinging. It's the uh, trying to feed off of life, trying to get something from the moment. That doesn't mean something won't happen, like somebody comes up and gives us a hug. It doesn't mean that we don't receive the hug. It just means while we're being hugged, we're not trying to get something from the experience. Or when we're eating, we're not trying to get something from the experience. We're just letting it be what it is. Or when something negative is happening, something painful is happening, we're not afraid that something's going to be taken away from us. This is You can do this even with coolness. Like some of you right now might be feeling cool. And we can feel that the coolness is out there to take something away from us, like my heat. And then it, it seems appropriate to resist it, which is suffering. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't you know, wrap yourself in a blanket, but to sit and to feel like the coolness is trying to take something from me. Or somebody turned the heat on and all of a sudden the room started to get warm, to sort of feel like there's something to get from the heat. See, it's, a, it's different than receptivity, which is letting the heat be the heat and the coolness be the coolness. And again, it doesn't stop us from doing something like taking a coat off when it's warm or putting a coat on when it's cool. But the clinging, it, it, the mind or the heart is free of the clinging, wanting or expecting something. When we learn about this seclusion, this non-clinging, the mind gets quiet. This uh, dispassion or disenchantment, and it's it's the beginning of real intimacy, actually, which is very enlivening. The Buddha talked all the time about the joy of renunciation. See, mostly when we think of renunciation, we think it that life becomes kind of stark and uh, joyless. 
you know, gray. Maybe it even felt that way a little bit today, given the coolness of the weather and the sky was a little bit gray. And besides the meals, there wasn't too much exciting going on. And uh, this can have all... So this is what the Buddha means by renunciation. The joy of renunciation. What does he mean, the joy of renunciation? I get the renunciation, but I don't get the joy part. Where is the joy in renunciation? But there's this... uh, um, You know... The opposite of joy is, is the burden, the exhaustion that comes from the mind being distracted, being pulled in all the different directions that it gets pulled. And when the mind is not burdened by those distractions, those attachments, then there's the experience of wholeness. And that's an energized, joyful experience. And we can use that experience then to understand how it is that the heart gets burdened. We don't want to just indulge in that quietness and that joy. We want to put it to good use. In one passage, the Buddha said, There's no fire like greed, no crime like hatred, no sorrow like separation. No sickness like the hunger of the heart, and no joy like the joy of freedom. Look within. Be still. Free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of living in the way. So we take that stillness and that energy. So stillness doesn't mean deadness. In the in the the way the Buddha talks about the mind, that as we practice this letting go, this very specific letting go, so we're not letting go of anything but our attachments, our tendency to cling. That's what we're letting go of. So with the letting go of that, there's a quieting of the mind, but there's also a building of energy, of joy. They, they happen at the same time. The stillness and the brightness come together. The tranquility and the brightness, the energy come together. It's a really potent mix where the mind is very grounded, quiet, still, because it's not being agitated by its habits of clinging, wanting, aversion. That's what we've renounced, we've let go of. And, uh, but, but it has all this potential energy, brightness, And in a very subtle way, we direct it towards dukkha. So we see even in any little mind movement towards greed or towards aversion, we see the burden of it. And we see the sweet joy of living in the way, the way of not picking up those habits of greed and aversion. So here we're understanding dukkha, suffering as a noble truth, We talked about this in one of the small groups, you know, why there's such an emphasis on dukkha in Buddhist practice. Because the freedom, the real freedom in life is the absence of this dukkha. So the only thing that prevents 
that's in the way of perfect contentment and peace is our practice, our our habit of dukkha, dukkha in, <laughs> you know, suffering. That's what's in the way. It's the only thing that needs to be abandoned. We don't need to fix the world. It's not the problem of the world. The problem is here in our heart. And so this is also a way to approach Dhamma through the understanding of Dukkha. But we have to appreciate that mostly we can't go there directly because if we go to Dukkha directly, it's like we're already oppressed by Dukkha and then we turn to Dukkha. Well, an oppressed mind, an oppressed heart turning towards Dukkha is just going to want to get rid of the Dukkha. It's not going to want to understand the Dukkha. So that's why we need to discover wholesome joy, the joy of renunciation, the joy of a quiet, unburdened heart. And then we use that mind, heart, to turn to dukkha. I mean, that's the basic formulation of practice that the Buddha gave. Find some joy, some wholesome joy. The joy quiets the heart. Like that uh, quote I read before. Wholesome joy quiets the mind and heart. When the mind and heart are quiet, meaning not bound up with clinging, with attachment, feeling the natural joy and energy of dispassion, of equanimity, resting with things as they are, then that's the mind to use to investigate dukkha. Because then that mind doesn't have an agenda. There's enough contentment that when we turn to dukkha, we're not immediately going to run or try to fix it or explain it or rationalize it. But we can actually, there's enough contentment, enough stability to get interested in the dukkha. What is this dukkha? What is this tendency toward weight, toward being burdened, being burdened in life? I love this particular expression of dukkha. It's a, a line from <clears throat> Basho, um, a Japanese poet from, I don't know how long ago, do you know? A couple hundred years ago, I think at least. Even in Kyoto, I long for Kyoto when I hear the cuckoo sing. I love that line. Like, this is our habit of craving. Like, even when we have our haagen we can be thinking about haagen <laughs> Or even when we're on vacation, we could be thinking about our next vacation. How many times when we've been on vacation have we been thinking about something really mundane, like what we're going to do when we get back to work? Or It's like we pay all this money, we do all this planning, and unfortunately we have to bring our mind along with us. <laughs> of course, it's the same for retreats, right? <laughs> You know, a lot of you, especially those of you with kids, had to do a lot of work and planning to get here. And then we think about our kids anyway, and we think about our, you know, partners or our life at home anyway, even though we've made this effort to be here. And this is such a great, these are great insights to see, you know, with enough stability in the mind, so we're not going to be swept away, to see over and over again how our mind creates the experience of burden, of being burdened. Seemingly out of nowhere. 
we can go from being quite light and buoyant, happy, really um, just feeling a lot of joy being here. And then all of a sudden, boom, we can be quite burdened. Somebody does something, maybe that's the trigger. Maybe a memory comes up, maybe that's the trigger. Maybe we have pain. So what do we learn? So uh, this is the this is very very enlivening. This kind of work, when there's enough contentment, enough ease in the mind, so we're not burdened by what we're seeing. It's so enlivening because we realize as we're watching, observing, uh, opening to the heart and how it gets burdened and how it becomes unburdened. We're realizing, oh my God, there is a path. So, I always say this, I don't think we human beings are afraid of hard work. What we don't like is work that doesn't go anywhere, doesn't lead anywhere. Human beings are hard-working creatures, generally. I mean, just look at what the silly things we've done, you know, building pyramids and, and you know, all the other things that we've done throughout history just because, you know, you know, we feel compelled to, to do something that makes us feel substantial. So we're not, you know, and all of those things don't really work. That's the amazing thing. <laughs> I mean, whatever Pharaoh was that decided, I'm assuming the, the pyramids are basically memorials, aren't they? Isn't that the thought? So, you know, did it actually make the person, anybody feel better? Maybe a little bit for a little while. And that's about it. So we're not afraid. In fact, we feel quite enlivened when we start doing something that actually pays off, like observing dukkha. It's like, you know, when you watch children learn things, it's amazing. I was uh, with Christie's and Eric's child at the Mindful Parenting Group a couple weeks ago, and their daughter, Celia, was there and they were in meeting the parents meet and a couple parents and some other uh, community members sometimes watch the kids and so I was helping out watching the kids and Cecilia, Cecilia I think is her name she had just learned to walk she still needed to hold somebody's hand but she was you could just tell she was just in a pure state of joy so happy to have learned to walk so happy to have that mobility and uh, she was so grumpy not being with her parents. But as soon as she was walking, she was just giggling with joy. She couldn't stop herself. Of course, it wasn't so easy for me or for the other adults because she had to continually walk. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just, I think the point here is that learning is inherent, for human beings, learning is inherently joyful. And, and this is the deepest, most profound kind of learning to see this aspect of the mind, how the mind creates a sense of weight and how the mind is freed, can be freed from that weight. And so, just like a child, you know, practitioners feel so enlivened and, and, and can become unbearable because once they're done with the retreat or their sit, they want to tell everybody about it. <laughs> Let me tell you about meditation practice. Maybe you find yourself doing that with friends at times and you just see them kind of closing down, <laughs> not wanting to hear you talk anymore. 
There's actually, uh, <coughs> uh, teachers talk about this state a lot, especially Sayada Upandita, this Burmese teacher, about the stage in practice, which, you know, we come up, we meet several times, and not just once, where uh, we want to stop practicing in order to tell other people about the practice. <laughs> and he says it's an imbalance of faith and wisdom. Too much faith, too much confidence, not enough wisdom, meaning we don't see that that is just an attachment. You know, we, we've gotten attached to the wonder of practice, to the possibility of really freeing the heart, of living with an unburdened heart. Because we know now it's possible. doesn't mean our heart isn't burdened. doesn't mean we're not getting caught in greed, anger, and delusion. But we're remembering relatively often that it doesn't have to be this way. It's just a matter, as Nisargadatta says, of understanding that the hooks are all mine. You know, life is filled with things to get attached to or be averse to. But we don't need to do that. And if you've been coming to the talks, uh, the Wednesday and Sunday talks recently, I've been quoting uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, this uh, American Buddhist monk, well-known author and teacher, Buddhist teacher. And he <clears throat> describes a teaching one of his teachers in Thailand gave him, which is that mountains may be inherently heavy in and of themselves, but mountains are only heavy to us if we try to lift them. And this is the same point here, this investigation in dukkha, into dukkha, and why it's so enlivening, why we develop a sense of urgency and joy just being in the proximity of this understanding, that human existence may be heavy in and of itself, like the inevitable loss, as a human being, there's inevitable loss. There's an inevitable physical pain, like when we get sick or old. There are inevitably ups and downs. But those ups and downs are only a problem if we try to lift them up, if we take a hold of them. As long as we're not clinging to them, they're not a problem. As soon as we cling to the ups and downs in life, then it's a problem. Excuse me. And the Buddha taught this way in many, you know, came at it in many different ways, but he basically made this point over and over again, like with the eight winds, gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. He called these the eight worldly winds, that inevitably, when we're in the world, we're going to blow between gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. This is just inevitable unavoidable. The question is, do we try to pick it up? Do we cling to the gain and cling to the loss? And what's the alternative? But this is the reason we study dukkha, is because we realize the alternative just by studying it. It's not even that Mark has to do the right thing and let go. It's not even that. It's not even that difficult. I have to let go of clinging. Even that's too much. All we have to do is understand clinging when there's clinging. And letting go happens. Letting go is the inevitable result of seeing clinging as clinging, seeing attachment as attachment, seeing aversion as aversion. Letting go is inevitable. But we have to be there. We have to be awake. 
and this is an especially rich time for me with like I've mentioned several times with the building and it's just happening over and over again and I I feel sometimes bubbling with joy in the midst of working too much having too much responsibility uh, but at the same time I feel this uh, this uh, very palatable joy because over and over again I'm seeing I'm relating to this situation in my life where uh, being a leader of a community making a you know a difficult and uh, important decision and I feel burdened and then I stop clinging I stop trying to hold it up doesn't mean I'm not doing my responsibilities but I'm not holding it up and everything opens up to joy and then in, uh, a couple of minutes later I might be burdened again by the situation and then I let go and I see that it's not a burden at all it's only a burden if I think there's a right or wrong decision or if I'm afraid of this or that happening isn't that amazing about our lives there's actually nothing difficult about being a human being which includes loss and death and everything else that ha happens in life it's only difficult being a human being if we do this right if we freeze up if we somehow are afraid of being a human being afraid of the ups and downs the pain and pleasure the gain and loss but if we completely open to that what's the problem of human existence <clears throat> so part of this investigation you know we talked about seclusion and then the investigation into dukkha and then sort of the continuity of the insight that we get by cultivating this this deep seclusion the non the not picking up the not the not being distracted by life and we investigate dukkha and we have insight that dukkha is only dukkha if you try to pick it up if we get attached or cling and then we we see the possibility of living an ordinary beautiful free existence this is from uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa a well-known Thai monk some of you know Santikara who comes to Minneapolis teaches the, one of the TCVC retreats and has also spoken at Kamagran a number of times will be coming back in May to do a few programs at Kamagran and his teacher Ajahn Buddha Dasa um, just a wonderful teacher this is an article that he translated that Tati Karo translated um, and it's about uh, the life that doesn't bite freedom in Buddhism I like some of these Thai monks who are so earthy and how they talk about Dharma about practice nothing can be owned by other things not even nature itself everything is completely free of ownership in being owned 
The essence of Buddhism is doing what needs to be done without any ideas of me or mine, without any ownership or possessiveness. Relinquishing ownership, possession, and clinging to me and mine amounts to the classic Buddhist goal of relinquishing attachment to the five aggregates of life, the body, feeling, perceptions, thoughts, consciousness. These aggregates are naturally functioning subsystems necessary for human life. When they function without clinging, there is freedom. The clung to aggregates are the prison of life. Letting go of them is like a con- convict being released from prison. Call it salvation, deliverance, liberation, or release. These all amount to the same thing, freedom. The cool life that doesn't bite itself. Such a life does whatever needs doing, according to its mindfulness and wisdom. In this freedom, egoism, selfishness, and the reactive emotions no longer obstruct. In Pali, this is also described as viveka, the singleness or oneness of heart-mind where nothing can disturb, afflict, and trap or harm it in any way. Does the power of this kind of freedom interest you? Nibbana, the supreme reality of Buddhism, is simply this coolness. Thus, it's important that we understand this coolness properly. Imagine a burning coal from a fire. When removed from the fire, it glows red because it's still hot. After it cools down, it no longer glows red. When it's no longer hot, we say that the coal is Nibbana. It is cool. Even this physical example helps us to understand Nibbana, the coolness of something that was once hot. However, we're really talking about the fires of the mind, by which we mean the reactive emotions. Should you honestly look at greed, hatred, fear, and the like, you will realize that they are truly fires burning the heart-mind. The going out of such fires is Nibbana. In our lives, so easily distracted by consumerism and terrorism, we aren't aware of these internal fires, and so we have trouble understanding what is meant by spiritual coolness and freedom. And that's the real beauty of our practice, and then specifically retreat practice, is we see in our ordinary life we're totally oblivious to these fires. But when we come on retreat, we see the obsessive tendencies of the mind, the addictive tendencies of the mind, the aversive tendencies of the mind. And we see, oh my God, this is burning. This is real dukkha. The mind is dukkha when it's, you know, when it's uh, allowed to continue in these patterns. Ajahn Sumedho talks about that this path, you know, where we're really uh, taking refuge in what is most ordinary, it's really taking refuge in knowing or awareness itself. This is the natural expression of this coolness, awareness without any agenda, awareness that's free of attachment free of agendas, expectations. This is our true refuge. This is how to be an ordinary human being, which means to be a free human being. 
ordinary in the sense that we're not doing this extraordinary thing, which is whipping up drama. So this is so useful for me, I know, and maybe for some of you, not to imagine that enlightenment is something special, but it's really about being free with this ordinary life, with this ordinary personality, with the ordinary circumstances that we have in our life. It's this profound, this beautiful, this alive life. But it's not different than what it already is. It's just the mind that's not burning not needing things to be other than they are. There's no fire like greed, no crime like hatred, no sorrow like separation, no sickness like hunger of heart, and no joy like the joy of freedom. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment, know the sweet joy of living in the way. Well, let's just sit for a few seconds together. Together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.